The word of God for us today comes to us from the book of Acts. This is Acts chapter 24, verses 1 through 27. This is the word of the Lord. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. And they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight most excellent Felix reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temples or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. And after some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and he heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with them. And when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Good morning once again, everyone. Good to see all of you. I wanted to introduce a couple of guests who are with us for the first time, I believe. Uh, we have Kenneth Yoon and Jess Barkas from Arlington. Just raise your hand for us. Were you, were you sitting in the back over there? 
Give them a warm welcome. I, I do see some uh, unfamiliar faces. If, if you would, please uh, fill out a Connect card for us so we can sort of like, you know, have a relationship and uh, you'll receive an email, you know, during the week, a welcome email, and we'll connect that way. So uh, please uh, get that Connect card in for us. All right, so today we're back in the book of Acts, and the title of the message is Governor Felix, the Procrastinating Opportunist. Uh, to help us stay on track today, I decided to uh, default back to my usual three-point sermon, uh, but instead of three points, it would be like a three-part. So a uh, three-part outline is as follows. Part one, the emotionally manipulative Tertullus, you can think of him as like a slick-tongued lawyer, okay? Um, not all lawyers are bad. I need to qualify. Once, once I give a message, once I give a message uh, several years ago um, criticizing lawyers, this is in Philly, and a member afterwards, you know, kind of uh, cautioned me, right, not to, not to be so hard on lawyers because her husband was a lawyer. So not all lawyers are bad, but uh, this one was, okay? Uh, part two, the procrastinating Felix. Part three, Jesus Christ, our worthy Savior. Okay, so part one, the emotionally manipulative Tertullus. Uh, this man named Tertullus uh, was essentially asked to travel with Ananias, the high priest, <clears throat> and uh, uh, several Jewish elders uh, to this trial uh, because he knew how to talk. He was a good spokesperson. He had this gift of speech, okay? Nothing wrong with having a gift of speech, but if you abuse it like he does in this story, then uh, there's a problem, okay? So he has this gift of speech with a slick tongue, like I said. And let's, let's see what that sort of looks like. <clears throat> Verse 2, uh, he opens up with this, right? A uh, little bit of, shall we say, flattery, right? Since through you, speaking to Felix, we enjoy much peace. And keep in mind the context is, you know, the Roman Empire, uh, an empire that prided themselves in having a, a society uh, built on peace and order, right? The, the great Pax Romana, uh, was declared. And so, yes, there was a stretch of this great prosperity and peace for this empire. And so I think that's the reason why it was important for him to emphasize this. Like, Through you, O great Felix, we enjoy much peace. And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us Briefly, and so let me highlight just three things he brings before this court. Uh, number one, first charge, this man Paul is a plague. That's the word he uses. Verse five, for we have found this man a plague. Uh, to Tarlis, uh, from what I gather here, he was trying to first appeal to the emotions of the people uh, to, you know, especially Tertullus's emotion, because he was basically telling Tertullus that Paul was like this infectious disease. He was this, this serious contagion that could not be ignored. Right? He, he was going to be the source of this great disorder that would come upon this peaceful Roman society. It would threaten the Pax Romana that, that you know, the empire is trying to preserve. You could think of it this way. You know, a good number of people in our day 
all right? Living in this, you know, great time we're living is where, where this, you know, great medicine is available to us. There's wonderful therapeutic options available. And yet, right, people are still fearful. They have this strong, visceral reaction whenever they hear the word COVID, for instance. And if that's true in our day, how much more true do you think it would be uh, to, to have the word contagion or infectious disease, right, or virus or plague thrown at you, where far, far greater numbers of people died from such things? I believe, it, I believe that Tertullus knew exactly what he was doing, right? And he was appealing to emotions primarily because there was, there was no real substance behind his argument. Second thing he does is he calls Paul a bunch of things that would also uh, really make people cringe. Uh, for instance, you have here Paul as a rioter, Paul as a ringleader, and Paul a heretical cult leader. That they're all being, uh, Tertullus is describing Paul with all these negative words, right? Rioter, ringleader, and well, the word Tertullus uses is sect, okay? But sect basically means that uh, Paul is some kind of leader of this influential cult. And anytime we use the word cult, what comes to mind are groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses, right? Or maybe uh, you've grown up uh, encountering the Moonies. Uh, these groups are considered to promote falsehood and confusion within you know, given society. Right? If you're familiar with the most menacing cults in our day uh, that have negative, negatively impacted Korean churches, uh, Tertullus was saying something to this effect. Right? Paul is the ringleader of another Shincheonji cult, okay? If you know, you know. Right? If you don't, then just understand that that word makes people cringe in the Korean community. Uh, so he was being crafty with his words, being very intentional. Another thing he, he charges Paul with is with this, he, that Paul profaned the temple. Verse 6, he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him is the claim. And this was also a blatantly false claim with, with no evidence to back it up. You know, Paul later points out that the original accusers weren't even present to make their case. Okay? And of course, the Jews knew this. Tertullus knew this. But in my opinion, right, they stuck with this accusation as sort of a Hail Mary option, hoping that Governor Felix would be corrupt enough to declare Paul guilty of this charge right, as a political favor to them. Uh, one thing I learned uh, during my studies is that the Roman law gave special status to the Jewish temple. So anyone who defiled this Jewish temple was given the death penalty according to Roman law. And so they, they treated the Jewish temple even as a sacred uh, building. And so my point is this. If Governor Felix had no conscience, okay, if his wife, for instance, who was a Jewish woman, by the way, more on that later, uh, if his wife wanted him dead, right, uh, she could have easily just whispered into his ear. And Felix would have felt pressure to order Paul's death sentence. But that didn't happen. 
simply put, it wasn't Paul's time to go just yet, right? God's purpose was still being fulfilled even in this precarious moment. Enough with Tertullus for now, okay? Part two, the procrastinating Felix. So after Tertullus lays out the charges the Jews are wanting to make against Paul, it says the governor nods to Paul, giving Paul the chance to speak. And this is a good thing, right? Because you always want to hear both sides of the story, if it's, all, if it's at all possible. Uh, during this past week, this verse came to mind, uh, verse from Proverbs 18, 17. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Isn't that the case? <laughs> the, the person you talk to first always seems like, like they're right every time, right? No fail. Until the other comes and examines him. So true. But this, this shouldn't just happen in the court of law, right? It should also happen in our norm, normal interactions with people. You know, whenever I hear uh, someone share a story uh, accusing someone of a wrong, as hard as it is sometimes, especially if it's like my close friend, uh, I, I do my very best to suspend judgment, right, until I get to hear the other side of the story. And then I try to weigh the evidence offered, okay? And I do that unless it's not my place to do so, okay? Uh, if it's not my place to kind of be the mediating figure, then I need to choose not to make any judgment, actually, and just kind of stay in my lane without creating any further drama. It's, it's such a hard thing to do, but it's, it's a right thing to do. So I want you to see that up to this point in our story, it seems like Paul is being given a fair trial because he now, he does have a fair chance to defend himself, right? Both sides of the story are given. Uh, but interestingly, Paul actually doesn't have to say much because the accusations are so weak. And all, all he had to say, as we see here, is like, look, if you break it down, it's just, it's plainly, it's like, look, I, I've only been in Jerusalem for barely 12 days, right? I mean, what riots are we talking about here, you know? I mean, I was the one who was attacked by a mob, right, you remember that? While observing a temple ritual, right? While I was showing respect to my Jewish customs and traditions, a mob attacked me, a riot happened to me. I wasn't the source of the riot. And how exactly did I profane the temple? He also says, where are my original accusers? They're not even here to back up their charges, is what he says. And the last thing he says is this. The truth, the truth of the matter is that the only reason I'm here is because my Jewish brothers are strongly opposed to the truth concerning the resurrection of the dead. And of course, everyone knew that he was implying uh, how our own resurrection is tied to the resurrection of Christ because that's been his message all along. And so you may look at this and say, this is good. You know, this is truly a fair trial. But I question that because if this was truly a fair trial, Paul would have been declared innocent and set free on the spot. Right? But here's where the story becomes interesting because this is where 
we get to learn more about who Governor Felix actually is. Right? We get to learn about his character. First of all, Luke tells us in verse 22 that Felix possessed a rather accurate knowledge of the way. How could this possibly be? Well, again, his wife was a Jewish woman, and so I guess I'm, I'm suspecting that he was able to kind of get up to date on the Jewish-Christian relationship back in his day through his wife. Right? He understood the Jewish religion better because his wife was a Jewish woman. He understood what the tension would have been between the Jew and the Christian. And so the point is that he already knew this dynamic, which means that he would have known fairly quickly that Paul was being wrongly accused by this Jewish party, and that he was innocent. But nonetheless, look at what he does. It's like, no matter what people say, what I've learned is, in the end, they are judged by what they do, right? They are judged by their actions. So look at what he does. He chooses to unnecessarily delay his decision. And he says, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. He's basically delaying. He's postponing. He's stalling. But why the delay? There's no reason for a delay. He already knows that Paul is innocent. But, you know, Felix, as corrupt as he was, he still had a conscience, and so... I mean, he must have felt a little sorry for Paul because he allows Paul to enjoy some liberties while in prison, as it says here. And his friends were allowed to, to attend to his needs, as it says in verse 23. And so that much is good. See, but we're still left scratching our heads, wondering why Felix chose to keep Paul in prison. Was there an ulterior motive? And so we, we're, we need to keep on reading. Verse 24, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. And it says that Felix was alarmed. Okay? Now, there's one thing I want to mention about Paul before I continue on with Felix. I want you to notice how respectful Paul is before Felix in this story, and yet how bold he is in not shying away from speaking truths about God and about sin and judgment that caused Felix to sense the fear of God in his heart. You don't want to overlook that. You see, when, when you speak God's word plainly to people without sugarcoating anything, guess what happens? Right? People's hearts are exposed, and it makes them feel uncomfortable. In Felix's case here, it made him feel, it not only made him feel uncomfortable, it made him tremble. That's the word that's really being used here. But I think about Paul. You know, like if I was thrown in prison, and if I was treated so harshly by the governing authorities for doing God's work, I think it would be very easy for me to wallow in self-pity, don't you think? 
that God, why would you do this to me after I sacrificed so much of my life for you? I would never say that out loud. Okay? I know what the right thing to say is, but I, I think I would feel that in my heart. But that's not what we see in Paul's example. You know, Paul is more like this. If I'm going to be thrown in prison for preaching the gospel, then guess what? <laughs> that means God is giving me an, an opportunity to preach the people in prison, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul's circumstances may have changed, right? His audience may have changed, but his message never changed. His commitment to God, the gospel never changed. I love this about Paul. I mean, the more I study the book of Acts, I, I really, I do grow in my fondness for the apostle Paul. And I think I, I'm beginning to understand why my parents named me Paul. <laughs> They also had a great admiration for the apostle. But what a, what a godly example of faith and humility we see here. Brothers and sisters, whether we're rich or poor, whether we're given freedom or oppression, may we never compromise our faith before others. Amen? And so, back to Felix. It says that, after Felix heard Paul speak about faith in, in Christ Jesus and reason about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment, right, Felix was alarmed, right? In Greek, it reads, Felix was emphobos, right? Do you hear the word phobia? Emphobos. It means he was afraid. He was fearful. Some translations say he was frightened. I say he was shaken. He was trembling. And that, again, it means that Paul was not beating around the bush when he spoke to Felix. He spoke honestly about sin and the coming judgment of God that would fall upon Felix's head unless he repented of his sins. And just like us, Felix had many sins to confess. But I wonder why he trembled so much before the words of Paul. Um, and this is an insight that I've I found that I think would be helpful for us to process together. You know, some commentators point out that his wife Drusilla, okay, uh, the records I, I read say that Drusilla was probably his second wife. But this woman was a woman of legendary beauty, right? But her marriage to Felix was a questionable one because. It's believed that Felix lured her away right, unjustly, immorally, lured her away from her previous husband right, in order to marry her himself. And so it's very possible that Paul confronted Felix in the same way that John the Baptist confronted Herod, if you remember that story. Right? John the Baptist did something very similar because Herod's marriage, he had a very immoral marriage as well. And so Paul, it's possible that he, Paul raised this question of righteousness and accountability before God. Now, in the case of John the Baptist, Herod retaliated harshly by having John's head served on a platter, literally. But in contrast to Herod's hardened response in this story, Felix trembles before the thought of God's judgment. But I want to ask you this. Do you think, brothers and sisters, that it is enough to tremble 
before the thought of God's judgment over your sin? I tell you, it is not enough that even the demons tremble before God, even the demons shake and shudder before God. It is not enough. What Felix should have done immediately is to repent of his sins before our holy God. What he should have done was to fall down on his knees with his wife, Drusilla, and they should have both pleaded for forgiveness from God. But look at what he does instead. Again, he delays to make a decision. He keeps on delaying. He says, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And so this is where he gets his nickname, Felix the Procrastinator. One commentator uh, very insightfully writes, the real tragedy of Felix's life was not that he postponed making a judgment about Paul in regards to the Sanhedrin's accusations, but that he postponed the far more serious matter of making a decision concerning Jesus Christ. And as I consider what may have held back Felix from fully giving his life to Christ, I can't help but to think that it was his love for the world. It was his love for money and power and comfort that prevented him from making a decisive decision to follow Christ. And the author, Luke, actually gives us a hint in verse 26 that that was the case, right? Verse 26, at the same time, Felix hoped that money would be given him by Paul, right? That, that's basically Luke telling us he wanted to be bribed. He, he wanted Paul to offer him money. And if Paul did offer him money, guess what Felix was going to do? He was going to release Paul. That's interesting to me. You know, uh, it's interesting because he kept on meeting with Paul, right? Like, it says that he met with Paul often. And he, he heard Paul speak these eternal truths that would have weighed heavily upon his heart, but he was never willing to cross over completely. It was like how we often say, or maybe sometimes say, you know, he was living with one foot in the church, one foot in the world, right? Living as a compromiser, right? Not fully committing to one. His heart was entangled with a love for money and power, and ultimately, he wanted what the world could offer him. Now, the most surprising detail I find in this story is found in verse 27. Verse 27, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Right? So I ask you again, do you think Paul got a fair trial? Or is this Roman justice system as corrupt as it gets? Right? I mean, what surprises me is that Felix, Felix's habitual delays, right? It led to two years, not, not just a few months. I mean, that would have been expected, I guess. But two years? <laughs> it led to two years of prison time for Paul. And then when, when he could have finally done the right thing at the end of his term, what does he do? 
he delays again. He basically defers to the next guy in charge, Festus. Why? As a favor to the Jews. It was for political reasons. He's a scoundrel after all, right? That's why the final nickname I'm giving Felix is the procrastinating opportunist. Maybe I should have said the, the procrastinating scoundrel, right? I mean, this is how most people are in the world, unfortunately. They, they might be diligent and successful people in their workplaces, but they are spiritual procrastinators and opportunists, and they will only do the right thing if there's an earthly benefit given to them. So that's my take on Felix. Part three, Jesus Christ, our worthy Savior. In contrast to Felix, Jesus did not come into this world to procrastinate. He did not ask his father for any extensions. He was not an opportunist who was looking out for himself when he chose to hang on that cross. Rather, he has set a plan and he stuck with it without making any excuses he was never half-hearted or double-minded in his work to save us, but he was always eager and determined to do the will of his Father. He was on time. He was never late. Don't you love it when people are on time? Jesus is always on time. And that's still true for us today. You know, we may not always like God's timing. But God's timing is always perfect. Amen? So the very first thing that anyone should ever do is recognize that Jesus is a worthy Savior. He is worthy, brothers and sisters, of our lives. He is worthy of our time and energy. He is worthy of our struggles, of our pain, of our sufferings. doesn't matter how difficult our life is now or in the future. He will always be worthy. Brothers and sisters, one of my main goals today is to encourage each of you to respond to God's word without any further delay. Why have you been delaying for so long? True faith and repentance are always meant to lead to active obedience a procrastinating and calculative heart reveals whom we ultimately trust. You know, no doubt many of us have fallen into unhealthy patterns of spiritual procrastination during the COVID years. And these patterns, these habits have carried into these post-COVID years we're living in now. But brothers and sisters, we must reverse the patterns of spiritual slothfulness that continue to shape our lives. No one is immune to these patterns. I still have some of that in me as well. Let's commit to reversing these things in our lives so that we may be wholly devoted to God again. I... As I was preparing the message, I, uh, I remembered a, a conversation I had with a, an old college friend <clears throat> way back, okay, a long time ago. But there's interesting how 
certain memories still stick with you. This friend, he was a very smart guy, went to a very prestigious school. Uh, but you know, during one of our college fellowship meetings, <clears throat> he asked this question, you know, he was, he was being sincere too. Why, why can't I live my life the way I want to now? And because you know, there's a lot of fun things to enjoy. Why can't I live the way I want to freely and just give my life over to Christ right before I die? Um, I guess he was trying to think just surely logically, right? Uh, why can I do that? Right? Have you ever asked that question? Just live it up now, and right before you're about to die, you give your life to Christ. And I told him, that's not how salvation works. <laughs> that's not how faith works, my brother, right? There's no, like, on and off switch, you just turn on and off. Brothers, sisters, I want you to realize one thing and be clear about this. I'm convinced more than ever that this is true, okay? As people get older, it becomes more difficult for them to humbly place their faith in Christ. Uh, because, I mean, there, there's a variety of reasons for that, but I think one reason is because there is this corrupting influence of sin that, that over time it hardens people's hearts. And so the older you get, if you don't have Christ, if you don't have the Holy Spirit working in you and sanctifying you, then your heart is going to grow harder over time. There's also the element of hardship, right? Uh, the pains we experience in life. Over time, as life becomes more difficult, as you get older, and you see just more darkness and more sin in the world, guess what happens? You become jaded. You know what that is, right? People, they start so innocently, <laughs> as they go, why are, you, why are you so cynical, man? Right? You're so jaded. You don't trust anyone. And so they have a very hard time placing their faith, even in God. Have you noticed that? People rarely become more open to the gospel as they grow older. That's why older people are more difficult to reach. That's true. You know, older people are, as everyone has observed throughout history, they're stuck in their ways. Here's one story I read that I think is very helpful. Uh, it's a story of a 20th century pastor and theologian uh, named Harry Ironside. It's his experience. It was recorded. Okay, let me, let me just read, read this story for you. Um, it happened when he was 12 years old, okay? Because one day, Harry Ironside had gone to hear the famous Dwight L. Moody. If you don't know him, he's just a well-known evangelist back in his day. Uh, and Moody was preaching in an old theater that held about 10,000 people. It's a huge crowd. I have yet to speak to a crowd of that size, right? Probably never will. But because the theater was jammed with people and he was just a boy, Ironside managed to climb up on a rafter above where Moody was speaking. So he had a great view of everything. And from there, he was able to look down. And, you know, Moody addressed the, the people saying, I want everybody who knows the Lord Jesus Christ as his or her Savior to please stand. 
So you had like six or 7,000 people doing this, whoosh, they all stood up, okay? Um, and then Moody went on saying something like this. I want everyone from this large number who are Christians, uh, but who became Christians before the age of 15 to be seated. And so about half of those who had been standing sat down. And there were about 3,000 people left. Moody continued on, I want everybody who became a Christian before the age of 20 to sit down. Another half were seated. So how many are left? 1,500, okay? You tracking? <laughs> Moody kept on raising the numbers, uh, numbers by 10. 30 years of age, 40 years of age, right? 50 years of age. And, and by the time he got to 50, guess how many were standing? Only about 20 people were standing in, in that vast auditorium. And the point is that it's never easier to believe in Jesus Christ than when you are young. And it's always harder later. That, that's how it is. This is not an advertisement to serve in the children's ministry, okay? <laughs> but souls, they're softer. They're more receptive to truth when they're younger. There's something about life that does harden you, something about sin that corrupts you. So I, I want to challenge all of us this morning, you know, if you have not yet made a decision to follow Christ, why is that? Are you like Felix? Have you been paralyzed by a love for this world? But don't you know the longer you delay, the harder it will become for you? Your heart will only grow harder as the years go by. So come to the Lord when you still have time. The Christian life is not an easy life, but you will not regret it. And for those of you who have already made a decision to follow Christ, understand that the principles of spiritual procrastination, they still apply to you as well. Right? The more you delay in obeying God's word, whatever that word may be, the more difficult it becomes later on. In closing, here's a short poem for you to think about. I did not write this, but it's a very appropriate poem. It goes like this. There's four lines. Procrastination is my sin. It brings me naught but sorrow. I know that I should stop it. In fact, I will tomorrow. And there is no way I can end the message with that, okay? So let me end with these more life-giving words from the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. As God's co-workers... We urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. I tell you, now, right now, okay? Right now is a time of God's favor. Right now is a day of salvation. So do not delay. And also, Joshua chapter 24, 15. Brothers, sisters, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river 
or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me, and as for my house, we will serve the Lord. What will you do? You have a decision to make. Do not delay and do not defer. Let's pray. Dear Father, we confess that our hearts are prone to falter in the face of adversity. Even, even when we know what the right thing is, in our fear and rebellion, we choose to do what we know is ultimately foolish. And sometimes the sinfulness of our hearts severely darken our judgment and our ability to reason, and so we choose to procrastinate and avoid doing that which is good, perfect, and pleasing in your sight. Forgive us, Lord, for our folly and grant us the humility, wisdom, and courage we need to no longer delay in responding to your grace. You are truly patient with sinners, and you have been patient with us, but we know that you will not be patient with sinners forever. There will come a time of final judgment. There will come a time where we will be held accountable by our maker. And so we cling, Lord, to our Lord Jesus. And we express our desire to be bathed in his blood and be made clean. And we want to do this when such grace is still offered to us, Lord. So help us to no longer delay. As your word says, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll stand together and we'll praise to God.